Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18 together, as we prepare for our study in the Minor Prophets. Once you read the text, you'll understand why, why Deuteronomy, <laughs> uh, to introduce the Twelve. As you turn, I want to thank you, church family, for your feedback as we were really in conversation with one another over the last couple weeks about this particular study. Overwhelmingly, uh, the church family uh, had said that, yes, uh, we would love to study uh, this part of Scripture because we don't know it. <laughs> we don't understand it. We've never really looked at it. That's one of the things I love about this church is the hunger for the Word. It precedes me. I think it's why I wanted to be here. And so it's a great relationship, us being able to spend this time focused together on God's Word. All of it, not just the popular spot. So let's prepare as we look to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'll read our text for us, verses 15 down through verse 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. passage that we read earlier in the service today may very well be the most horrifying in all of scripture. It was there that we read of a man of means and wealth burning alive in eternal torment. It's a grotesque thought. I mean, it's something hard to even comprehend. And yet, in it we hear what we would expect to hear of one who is suffering so acutely. First of all, he cries out for relief from the pain. And yet, there is no relief to be had. 
and realizing that there's no way for him to escape his current dilemma, he at least cries out for the deliverance of those that he loves. He does not want them to suffer in the same way that he is suffering. And so he cries out to Abraham, the representative of heaven in this particular story, and says, please, uh, send someone from the dead to go and speak to my brothers and go and warn my family. And Abraham simply responds, no. They already have the law and the prophets. The law represented Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, those foundational books of the Bible. The prophets would represent what would be called the former prophets and the latter prophets. Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. And then the latter prophets, the ones that you normally think of. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. The rich man's not satisfied with this particular offer, and so he tries to renegotiate and says, No, Father Abraham, please send someone, and to what does Abraham, I mean, what does Abraham say in response to this pitiful cry? No, they have the law and the prophets. It seems that this rich man's underestimation of the Old Testament in particular plagues us even to this day. Such a view of Old Testament literature, especially that of the prophets, and not just the prophets, but the minor prophets in particular, is a far cry from the view that was advocated in that particular passage. Uh, to today, even, I can imagine us kind of objecting with the rich man. Uh, no, what they really need, what my family really needs to be converted is, and then we fill in the blank. And I just can't imagine anyone in this room, self-included, writing at the top of the list, the law and the prophets. We typically say things like what this world really needs, if we're really going to make an impact, if we're really going to do something for the Lord, uh, what we really need is some effective ministry methods. Uh, we need in our own day a little more sociology and we need a better handle on our demographic and we need to do a little updated marketing. And conservative Christians fall into this trap because they assume that uh, their churches aren't being effective on account of things as banal as the band or the marketing strategy or the small groups or the kids program. I mean, we're thinking, if we're really going to reach people, we have to fix these things. And yet, the text is crying out, no, you have what you need. You have the law and the prophets. Now, I actually think that most of us in this room, in particular, wouldn't argue for marketing methods as the thing that this world needs. I think most of you would actually argue for the word of God 
the preaching of the gospel. This is what we really need, and I think we're closer uh, to the right uh, area in this particular one. But we have a problem, though, even when we advocate for preaching being the answer because we only like to hear preaching typically on a few pet topics and passages. (laughs) Uh, We have our favorites, if you will. The gospels, you always score a home run there. Uh, The popular thing over the last 15 to 20 years has been epistles. People love the logic of the epistles. If you do venture into the Old Testament, you've got to keep it confined to like the book of Genesis, maybe some of the Psalms, and some of the greatest hits from things like Isaiah and other prophetic passages. But really, a a study of the entire 12, is, is that what we need in this day? I get it. A study on the 12, as one author put it, already has two strikes against it. One, it's in the Old Testament. (laughs) I mean, as soon as you put something old, you're thinking, well, that's not as good as the new thing, right? And then the second strike that it has against it is that it is the minor prophets, as opposed to the major ones. You know, like, why go see a minor league baseball game when you could see a major league baseball game? I mean, who wants to really study the minor prophets? This means that they're somewhat, like, insignificant. And so we assume that when we come to these texts, that they are obscure and that they are difficult and they are irrelevant. And one put it this way. He says, where is the edification for a modern Christian in a dirge celebrating the downfall of an ancient city? How can the gloomy forecast of captivity for Israel and Judah lift the heart today? The minor prophets seem to have been preoccupied with the nations and events that have little relevance to today's world. (laughs) So there's a part of me that thinks that somehow we must have misunderstood what Abraham was laying down. He said that they needed the law and the prophets, and you hear and think in these ways, and you're thinking, really, this is what we need? I think it's... I think that, um, that we know that they're significant. We know it's the word of God. The, the biggest struggle for us is not why we should study the prophets, but how. I think that's where the trouble is for most of us in this room. We know why. We know that it's not minor. We know that it is part of God's inspired word, and yet we just don't know how to go about it. How does one appreciate the prophetic genre? Y'all are looking at me to see if I'm going to say anything. I'm not. (laughs) It's not happening. How? How do you appreciate the prophetic genre? Interestingly, God has already written an explanation of how to handle what we call Old Testament prophecy from the very first book of the Bible. Now, I know that you think of the first book of the Bible as Genesis, but let's be honest, friends, the first book of the Bible is actually called Torah. It is Genesis through Deuteronomy. I know in our English conceptions of the Bible, we see that as five books. It's actually only one. And so you get to the end of this first book of the Bible, and it is forecasting for you this additional revelation that will come in passages to follow. And so Torah 
Old Testament teaching itself, the law, is effective for what Abraham was advocating because it teaches you the basics, the foundations. It shows us uh, for like the intention of God's world and, and what he wanted to happen with it and its inhabitants. Uh, the Torah, the law, shows us the flaw. A chosen uh, one who has rebelled against God through asserting their own will over that of God's. It, we, we learn that in the Pentateuch. But we also learn the fix. Not just the flaw, but the fix. Uh, that there will be a chosen one to right the wrongs that were set in motion by our first parents. And this fix and the solution, the savior, this rescuer, whatever term you want to use, would come to the world through a chosen people, a nation, Israel. That's what we learn from the law. That's what the rich man's brothers should have been listening to. But here's the deal. Though God intended for the nation to bring blessing to a broken world, Israel was still also broken by sin. <laughs> the rescuer needed rescuing. And though the law of God had revealed the opportunity for blessing through faithful obedience and warning through faithless rebellion, the Israelites as broken sinners would need ongoing input from God. And so listen to this. The law was not enough. God would say in this very book that he would give additional revelation. He would give ongoing input. And that is what we have explained for us here in Deuteronomy. In this particular section of the Pentateuch, uh, Moses is about to die. He's passing off the scene and he's trying to prepare his people for life under God apart from his leadership. And so he re-preaches to them that which God had revealed on Sinai. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he adds some things that will help them for the years to come. One in particular is that in his absence, there would be ongoing leadership and guidance from God. That's where we are in Deuteronomy 18. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, you're going to see the provision for priests and Levites, and these guys were going to exist to uh, like be intercessors for them and their relationship with God, and they would instruct them the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. But then things take a weird turn in verse 9. It says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And then when you learn what those practices are, you find out, you can skim through the verses, that they have to do with telling the future, discerning the will of God. He says, hey, you need to be careful because when I pass off the scene, you're going to be tempted to try to learn what you need about God and his ways and the future from a source other than God himself. You're going to try to learn it from the, the ways of the pagans. Don't do that. Instead, God's going to provide for you something that you can lean in on for ongoing guidance and revelation, and that is the office of the prophet. That's where we are contextually. That's what we just read. He says, okay, here's where you're going to get your ongoing revelation. And this includes 
not only what we typically think of as those major prophets, but even this one scroll called the Twelve. So, friends, we need to understand what we're dealing with here. And I think if we understand the prophetic genres generally, you will be able to appreciate it and apply it specifically through our study of Hosea through Malachi. We want to get the what question right so that we can understand the why and the how. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I thought it was great. I mean, he's an intellectual, right? He knows how to teach things. And he says, the first qualification of judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do and how it is meant to be used. The first thing to understand the object before you as long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the... And thankfully, in Deuteronomy 18, we have an explanation of how to approach this thing. Essentially, this text today is going to incentivize our attention to the prophets through three ways. There's three incentives that we have for listening to the prophetic genre, which includes, of course, the twelve or the minor prophets. The first incentive is its divine origin. It's divine origin. Look at verses 15 through 19 again, and, and notice the initiative that God will take even though Torah will be complete. It says, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, will raise up for you a prophet. So God's going to raise up a prophet, like me, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And now notice the initiative again in verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And look at verse 19. He's so divinely ordained, it says, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God is saying, I will put someone in your midst who will speak on my behalf, and how you respond to them is, in effect, how you respond to me. They're going to be treated as one and the same. Now, the confusing thing for some of us is that it's in the singular. It says, a prophet, and it refers to him and he. And yet, this language is used earlier in the book of Deuteronomy to describe a king. It is talking about an office in particular. I'll explain more about this later, but I want you to understand that it is a collective use of a singular noun. It is talking about the prophetic office. And so he's saying, you need to treat this as if it is coming directly from me, because it is. These are my words. And I know that you understand this. I mean, God had spoken, for example, to his people in special ways before Moses. But he would always, like, show up in person. Like, well, in a theophany, in a way that they could appear and see. And so when Moses came along, he was actually one of the first ones to have this special audience with God and represent his will to the people. The nation of Israel did not have access to that. In fact, they would be afforded access to that, and as the text would say, they would run from it. They wouldn't want it. <laughs> they wanted somebody to represent God for them, and that is exactly what Moses did. 
And yet here we're, we're told that even though Moses is going to pass off the scene, God will provide some ongoing standard of revelation for his people. And it is not the ways of the pagans. I, I think that this is fascinating, especially for those of you who like history. They would legitimately be tempted to adopt the pagan practices of divination. Now, I don't know if you've taken ancient Near Eastern history at some point, but it is rather fascinating to me how pagans tried to discern the will of God. Sometimes they would look at the flight patterns of birds. There's a fancy name for this, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> but if the birds were flying in a particular direction, people thought, oh, okay, well, this means that the gods are moving in this way or that way. Uh, the Mesopotamians, in particular, uh, enjoyed uh, seeing unique things happen to the right or left side of a person. So if some event happened on one's right side, it was favorable. If it happened on one's left side, it was disfavorable. Now, one of the most disgusting, you don't want to think about this one at lunch, but it is when they would actually uh, dissect uh, a sheep or a ram, and then they would remove its entrails, and they would take the liver and look at the dimples on the liver, because they thought that's where life resided, and ask of it yes or no questions. Now, I don't know how it works. There's no manuals that explain this, but they were always ripping the intestines out of animals and thinking that it would somehow tell them the future. And the text is clear. Don't do that. <laughs> if anybody's struggling with that out here, don't do that. <laughs> Frankly, friends, we look at these things and laugh, but there are people in our own day and age who are trying to divine the future through things as asinine as astral patterns. That's what a horoscope is, by the way. It, I would say, don't do that. It's not telling you anything. This is forbidden. God has given a way by which you can know what he wants. And it is through the prophetic office. Now, while our word prophet in the 21st century conjures up images of someone in crazy clothing uh, calling out specific details of future events. I, I want you to understand what the word means. It fundamentally means one who speaks in the place of another. That's what the word prophet means. One who speaks in the place of another. In fact, you may remember, for those of you who grew up in church and you had Sunday school, uh, that event back in Exodus chapter 4 where Moses is supposed to go and, and speak to Pharaoh. And he can't do it because he says he's a man of uncircumcised lips. Basically, he thinks that he's not a good speaker. And so, in that, God actually arranges for Aaron, Moses' brother, to speak for him. And I'll just read you this verse from chapter 4, verse 16. It says, He, talking about Aaron, shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. That's interesting. He shall be your mouth. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 7, verse 1, God will look back to this same event, and it's speaking of Aaron as the prophet of Moses. It says, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. In other words, your brother Aaron will be the one who speaks on your behalf. He will be your mouth. And so also the prophets would be the ongoing mouthpiece of God. Even though Torah had been written and encapsulated and finalized, they would have ongoing speech from God through these particular men, which would require, by the way, both forthtelling and foretelling. 
I'll use those words often, but most of us, when we think of prophecy, we limit it to the predictive. We think of it as foretelling. This is going to happen at this particular time. Jesus is going to come back here and then. And yet, when you look statistically at prophetic literature, it's almost half and half. Sometimes they are foretelling, sometimes they are forth-telling. They are telling forth what God said, what God thinks about a particular issue. It's not always the future. And the point of this is that, the, that this prophet, whoever he is, uh, that when they're in exercise, they should be regarded as God. In fact, the way that one responds to the prophet will be treated with the same intensity as the way one would treat God directly. That's how serious this particular aspect of Scripture needs to be taken. Uh, this person is divinely authorized to speak on behalf of God. I, I like the term divinely authorized because it'll help you just remember like how official this is. Sometimes uh, people say that like preaching, uh, the Puritans used to do this a lot, they used to call preaching prophesying. Uh, I'm not too keen on that particular term because it demeans <laughs> actually what is specially going on in this text. These guys just weren't preaching. They were speaking what God would want said exactly. I mean, it is like they are the, I'll put it this way, the executive and judicial branches of government wrapped up in one. Now, I know, I did the research, uh, that 36% of us in this room, or only 36% of us, uh, if we took the immigration exam for the United States, would pass. So I get that American like politics and policy doesn't ring true with everyone. But just a history review real quick. The way that this like constitutional republic works is through a division of powers. <laughs> right? There's no one guy that's over it all. You've got the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Now, the executive is the president, the legislative is Congress, and then the judicial, of course, is the Supreme Court, which was prayed for today. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Those are official entities. They represent the authority of the nation. And yet, in this office, when it comes to the division of powers, if you will, there would be one man who would represent, at any given time, both the judicial and the executive office of Israel. This is big. He does not speak his opinion. He tells what God thinks. He interprets the law with God's aid, and he enforces God's rule, calling on certain consequences or blessings, depending on whether or not one was obeying or disobeying. This is huge. And so we need to understand that this is why Peter in 2 Peter 1, chapter 20, I mean, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Spirit. Uh, friends, I would remind you of this because we need to be careful, even within our co conservative evangelical sphere, that we do not relegate prophetic portions of the Old Testament to some kind of lesser status. 
we are not dealing with the minor leagues. In fact, uh, I want you to understand that even where this name came from, Augustine was the first one to ever call it the minor prophets. And what he was speaking of was their qualitative minority, not their qualitative minority. He's just saying they take up less space. <laughs> they, they take up less room. Uh, we understand this, right? Like it, it, when you talk about uh, the large intestine and the small intestine, nobody's going, well, the small one must be less important. Let something go wrong in there and then see what happens. This is, this is a similar way. Qualitatively, we're talking about these things being exactly the same. We're just talking about the quantity. And I really do think, I agree with Charles Feinberg on this. He says that the label minor prophets has been a PR disaster. <laughs> Something as simple as that language, as that modifier, I think has discouraged us from looking into this as the Word of God. We just kind of assume like that it has some type of lesser status. And what Deuteronomy 18 is helping us understand is that no, all inspired prophetic literature is equally of God. It is of divine origin, and it should be treated that way. The book of the 12 is the eighth component in the division of the Hebrew Bible. It is known as the prophets. Some scrolls label it the Twelve. Uh, you need to get the, the fact that it was regarded to be read as one book. That's interesting to me. Uh, they were placed intentionally on the same scroll, just like Genesis through Deuteronomy, so also the Twelve. Uh, we know this because of the high degree of intertextuality. They, they intentionally quote one another. They rely upon one another. Also, when you look at several historical collections of Old Testament scriptures, they treat them as one book. Uh, this would include the Apocrypha, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Babylonian Talmud, and the Masoretic Text itself indicates that this particular collection of books was intended to be read and studied together. Who's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. This is prophetic literature. It is equal with everything else that is out there. And friends, I would just remind you that how we treat the prophets is, is indicative of how we would treat the Lord himself. Let us not despise this. I'll just ask you this, and this is uh, I mean, just to provoke your thinking. Have these books represented a significant portion of your spiritual intake in the last five years? Five years, I'm just for some, maybe. For most, no. And yet they'll help you. It is inspired text. It, it will help you. It will fuel your adoration. Uh, it will encourage your obedience. And it will be effective as we preach for conversion. So we should pay attention to the prophets on account of their divine origin. But the text highlights another incentive for listening to the prophets. Or we've got another. This is in verses 20 to 22. And that is their what I'll call deadly accuracy. They are not only accurate, but they are accurate with threat of death. Look at verses of these final verses. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, here's how. 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. And by implication, friends, that means if he got it wrong, guess what? He's going to die. He's going to be executed. Now, at this point, the, the verses are getting kind of heavy because you're saying, all right, there's going to be these guys, and they're going to be floating around, and they're going to be speaking on behalf of God. And the more cautious among us should be thinking, like, well, what would keep anybody from just saying that God said this? Right? God told me to tell you to give me all your money today. <laughs> I mean, like, that, unfortunately, that stuff happens. And so a protective mechanism would be built in. How would we know whether or not this person was telling the truth? What would keep anyone from just saying, I'm a prophet. Listen to me. Do what I say. Follow my political agenda. So Moses emphasizes this accurate ending of this. And he says, look, here's the deal. Counterfeiting prophecy was a capital offense. It was protected by death. It was protected by threat of death. I mean, what other role in the history of civilization uh, was given such protection? In our own day, we know that impersonating positions uh, of authority can get you into serious trouble. Uh, one of the clearest examples of this is impersonating a police officer. I'm pretty sure it's illegal in all 50 states. I did look at the law just to make sure because I was thinking, what about all those kids that dress up as policemen for Halloween? There is a proviso in the law that says, if it looks ridiculous, basically, you don't have to worry about it. So. <laughs> but you know what the penalty is for impersonating an officer, at least here in the state of Florida? And we're talking that this is a felony, depending on how severe, that can be punishable for up to 30 years of prison, 30 years of probation, and $10,000 in fines. It's kind of steep, but it pales in comparison with the penalty for impersonating a prophet. It's death. God says this is special. And how would one even know the difference between the counterfeit and the real McCoy? To use a baseball analogy, the prophet bats a thousand. He never strikes. He always gets it right. Do you understand that? A hundred percent accuracy. He's not just pretty reliable. He is not just above average. They are 100 percent. If they predicted it, it will happen. If they expressed it, it is what God himself thought. And so, friends, we understand that like, this is nothing to be trifling with. This is a big deal. And that's why Peter would say, following those verses that we read, that Scripture is of no one's private interpretation, Sometimes we just get hung up on chapter divisions. The next few verses that follow this read as follows. He says, prophecy is not a human thing. It is men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And here's the ongoing sentence. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
The reason why, friends, we need to understand that the prophets were deadly accurate is because we have these forces in our own day that diminish prophecy, that cause us to look at it with suspicion. There are some things, even within the church of Jesus Christ, that are undermining the credibility of the prophets, like the twelve. Uh, the easiest is that in the context of a religious spokesperson who says, I'm from God and is not actually from Yahweh. Uh, someone from another religion, another faith, who says, here's the way to God. We are aware of those warnings. But there's another way in which we need to be careful. It isn't just in false religion, but I want to say this very respectfully, kindly, carefully. And please don't take me out of context. But I am ultra concerned about the charismatic movement's influence upon our underappreciation of prophecy. Now, I'll divide the charismatic movement into two primary sections. One would be what I would call, and I don't even know how to say this in the right way, this is disrespectful, and I just don't know how else to say it. The charismatic crazies, and then the charismatic confused. I'm just using alliteration for the sake of memory. All right, so the charismatic crazy is what you would normally see on Trinity Broadcasting Network. You know, somebody prays all night, gold dust is on their face. They say, you know, give me seed money, and then all of a sudden all your wildest dreams are going to come true. I mean, this stuff is normally pretty easy to see. Uh, sometimes not so much. Uh, but you, you think of guys like a Benny Hinn or a Kenneth Copeland. Uh, they normally like fit into this category, and it's just so obvious. They're like, this is so fake. <laughs> and yet they all claim to be prophets. And we're like, okay, well, that's not prophecy. We understand that. But, and here's where I'll be very respectful and kind and tender. I, I am also concerned, though, about the, the third wave of the charismatic movement, which is normally even reformed, and they understand the doctrines of grace. And I would call them the charismatic confused. These are people who are way smarter than I am in many ways, and yet they still insist on using the word prophecy for everyday events that happen in church life. For example, uh, someone could stand up in a congregation like this and say, uh, I have a prophecy uh, from the Lord, and they'll read or quote a Bible verse of some kind and then say, I think that this especially applies to the mothers in the congregation. Well, in and of itself, that is pretty banal. It's not very harmful for somebody to actually quote a Bible verse and say, I think it applies to the mothers in the congregation. That's not a big deal at all. I just wouldn't call it prophecy. Because, I mean, basically what, what the person is doing is they're setting themselves up as some type of special authority over the word itself. Why don't we just say, hey, I wanted to share with the mothers in the congregation a particular verse of Scripture. Now, where this gets dangerous is when somebody says, uh, God spoke to me and told me that I think that you should probably marry so-and-so or that you should probably not date so-and-so. This normally happens in marriage context. No kidding. All of a sudden, some well-meaning friend, some sister who is counseling a woman who is struggling in her marriage gets a word from the Lord that God said that you should be able to leave your husband. And what has happened at this point? We've taken fallible human opinion and we've placed it on the same level as the infallible word of God. 
And as this continues to spread through churches, they're like, oh, we're still practicing prophecy in my church. We're still practicing prophecy. Uh, what happens is <laughs> that person's opinion isn't getting pulled up. What is happening is that the prophetic word, especially in the scriptures, is being pulled down. It's like, oh, it must not be that important. Talk about a PR disaster. The word prophecy is special. In fact, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. This is the very foundation of our faith. We don't want to be monkeying around with these words. We need to be careful before we say stuff like, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that, or God wants you to do this. You better be able to justify that from a passage in Scripture. And so my fear is that sometimes prophecy just isn't seen as that important because of the bad PR that we've placed upon it. And yet this text is clear. It is deadly accurate. It is 100% spot on. It is never wrong. You can count on it. This is what God thinks. This is what will happen. And so we're incentivized to study on account of its divine origin, its deadly accuracy, and then lastly, its effective mediation. Its effective mediation. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do it today. Instead of following the normal flow of the text, I'm actually going to take you back up to something that I overlooked intentionally in verses 16 and 17. You remember that it was here that the Lord says, I'm going to raise up someone from among you. I'm going to raise up this prophetic office. And even as early as the second half of verse 15, he says, I'm going to raise up for you a prophet like me. Notice that. From among you, from your brothers. Moses is careful to make sure that they understand that this new prophet is not going to be like an angel that comes down from heaven. It's going to be a human being. It's going to be somebody like me. It's going to be somebody from you. It's going to be somebody from your brothers. He's really clear on the human element of this. And what he does is he refers them back to an event uh, in their history. Uh, it says in verse 16, Just as you desired, you desired a human prophet of the Lord your God at Horeb. Now, we don't think of Horeb very often. It's just another word for Mount Sinai. This is what you desired on Mount Sinai on the day of assembly. Do you remember that? The day of assembly. We don't think of it very much, but it was that climactic time in which God's people met before him on Sinai and he officially adopted them as his people, as a nation. And it was a terrifying event. I mean, absolutely terrifying to the degree that they said, Please, no more. I don't want to hear God's voice anymore. I want a human being to let me know what he said. Moses, you do it. I mean, it was bad. The, the text uh, is just so graphic uh, as it describes this. Uh, verses, uh, Exodus 19, verses 16 and 19. Just listen. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai 
was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And then the next chapter, verses 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. It's heavy. Can you imagine the scene? Do you know what it's like to be scared for your life? I remember being newly married, maybe only six months into it, trying to be the brave, strong husband that I hope I am. (laughs) And there was this one morning, I think it was a Saturday, because I was, um, I don't know why I was sleeping in, but we were sleeping in. And a thunderstorm had just risen from nowhere. I mean, but the crazy thing was there was no rain outside. It just looked like a normal, you know, day. And out of nowhere, this lightning bolt strikes the tree, this huge oak tree beside this old house that we were living in. And so naturally, the sound just peels off of that. I mean, it shakes the entire house. It was the loudest thing that I had ever heard. And I was so scared, we were so scared, that we just sat there and trembled and like literally held one another. Now at this time I'm thinking, it must have struck my house. My house may be on fire. And I can't even get up to go check and see if the house is on fire. (laughs) I mean, that's how scary it was. It, It triggered a fight or flight response. I mean, the adrenaline took over in that particular moment. When the text says they trembled, that is what they're talking about. I mean, imagine these repeated strikes of lightning, this thunder, this mountain that's shaking, this great fire. For those of us who have lived in Southern California, we know great fires, and they're horrific things. We've seen it even in the news of recent days where these people are just getting out of Dodge. Nobody's saying like, well, let me just see how close I can get to this thing. I mean, this was the the holy presence of God being revealed for them, and they're like, absolutely not. We're going to die. Moses, we need you to go between us and God and represent us in this. It was their idea, and God says, you know what? Good idea. Let me pick someone who can transmit my presence to you in an effective way. Moses, that's you. And you know what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18? This is going to be the prophets. They're going to be the ones who represent me to you. They're going to communicate my awesome, mighty presence in a way that you can handle. It's like taking that electricity from the lightning bolt and somehow converting it into something that you can use to charge your phone. (laughs) It says, we're going to We're going to translate, we're going to modify, we're going to convert this message into something that you can understand and that you can appreciate and that you can imbibe. And so God gave them Moses. And God gave them the prophets. And he would do this sometimes through speaking, like Elisha and Elijah and the sons of the prophets that you see in the book of Kings. And then sometimes he would do this not only through their written words, but I mean their spoken words, but their written words. 
And we see this in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the authors of the Twelve. This is the mediated presence of God. It is made, it is converted for you for your benefit, for your usage. You can now take it in. And because of that, it operates in a unique way. It is, friends, to be fair, it is more targeted at the emotion and at the heart and at the will than the mere law. The law informs the mind, although God intended for it to have effects on the heart. The prophets aren't writing anything new. They're just enforcing what was already written. They are targeting your heart, your mind, your emotions. I was eating lunch with a guy this week, and he used this term that I don't think I've ever used, but it made sense as soon as he said it. He said, uh, my daughter was wrecked uh, for this or that thing wrecked he meant emotionally like she had been torn to pieces like it had upended her and i think that is like what the 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 prophets are doing that they will wreck you like they are going to reveal for you the mighty majesty of god (laughs) i did something this week that uh, i debated with the pastoral staff as to whether or not to confess this but i will confess it Um, especially for those who have strong opinions on Bible versions, I want you to know that a little exercise that I went through this week and that I'm commending to you is an exercise fully to help you understand the emotional import of the prophets, not something that I would have you do in an in-depth study of. I read a part of the prophets this week through Eugene Peterson's The Message. It's a paraphrase. People give it a bad rap because they treat it as a translation. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. So let's get over that. <laughs> but what he does is he takes all those Old Testament idioms and metaphors and figures of speech and he translates them into modern ones. And it will blow your mind. <laughs> it is like the electricity has been filtered to that light socket and you just stuck your finger in it. I mean, it will light you up but in a way that you can handle. Can I ask you, church family, when was the last time you were wrecked by the word of God? Sure, movies, music, literature can bring you to the point of tears, but when was the last time just you and an open Bible wrecked you? That's the goal of the prophets. They want not only your head, but your heart. And as great as the prophets are, what's fascinating as we look at their study from the perspective of two millennia and a half from when they were written, that all these years of history would reveal one deficiency. I'm just going to admit this and we'll finish. There's one deficiency about the 12. And that is that the text spoke of of a prophet, singular, and it did did indeed mean a prophetic office. But the the crazy thing is about this, this passage is that none of the Old Testament prophets ever reached the status and significance of Moses. I mean, think about Moses. 
He was the one guy that ruled over basically the entire country on behalf of God. They would have kings, but they were merely political leaders. They were still priests. Like Moses like represented the entire thing for them. And so all the prophets, they'd come and they would go, but nobody would dominate like Moses did. And so even the Jewish people themselves would read this and understand the collective aspect, but they also saw within it a predictor. There would still need to be one who would come and perfectly mediate the presence of God for humanity. There would need to be one who could come and take all of the thunder and the lightning and the fire and transmit it in a way that we could understand. And the book of Hebrews explains it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is, The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Friends, you may not have studied the essential witness of the prophets, I get it. The coming weeks will allow this, but I have a better question for you. Have you heard the message of the prophet? The one par excellence who transmits to you the message of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We normally like to think of Jesus as the sacrifice, or we think of him as the sovereign And yet, when Jesus was preached in the early context of the New Testament, he was presented not only as those things, but as the prophet. It's in Acts chapter 3, where Peter is preaching on Solomon's portico, and he calls for the people to repent and to turn from their sinful ways. And he quotes this passage. It says in Acts 3.22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He's saying, heed the prophet, heed Jesus. God has sent him to turn you from your sinful ways. He is the authoritative representation of God. He is all you need. And friends, that is why you're okay right now. Some of you are are acknowledging, yes, I've never studied the prophets. I must be missing out on something. Look, you've got the gist of the message when you listen to Jesus. But it doesn't nullify the specialness of this prophetic witness. What we'll see in this is that indeed Jesus is the one who purely and perfectly represents God, and I would encourage any and all who are here who aren't sure of their relationship with this holy and mighty God to turn from their sin and, as Peter would exhort, repent and rely 
upon Jesus for access to God and relationship with him. But if you've already done that, I want you to know that the message of Jesus still resounds through these pages. It is in these coming weeks that we will see that sin is heinous, that judgment is fierce, that grace is amazing, and all will be well. That is the message of Jesus that is proclaimed and preserved for us even in these pages. Sin is heinous, judgment is fierce, grace is amazing, and all will be well. God has indeed spoken through Christ, but he still speaks through the prophets. And we should listen, because their origin is divine. Their accuracy is deadly. And their mediation is effective. Practically, friends, as we approach this study, I want you to know ahead of time that I'll be preaching this a book at a time. We'll do one a week. And I know for some of you that will be different. But I assure you this, as this church is committed to expositional preaching in times past, so it will be. I would define an expository message as one in which the shape and emphasis of the text matches the shape and emphasis of the sermon. If I decide to preach a book, the shape and emphasis of the book will match the shape and emphasis of the sermon. (laughs) It'll just be in larger portions. And the reason why I'm doing this is because, indeed, it is a book. And I want to treat it as such. We can always go back and drill down in the book of Joel if we want to or Amos, but since it seems that we're a little deficient on this genre in particular, let's just get an overview of the whole thing. So I'm going to encourage you as a church family in days ahead to avail yourself of these incentives that have been offered you today and read with us through the twelve. The guys have even emailed out a reading list for those who would like to follow along with us as a church family. And we're going to encourage you to read ahead of time. So this coming uh, Sunday, I'll be preaching Hosea. So maybe starting on Wednesday, you could start reading Hosea with us. And then through the Monday and Tuesday after that, keep reading Hosea to reflect on what you saw on Sunday. But guess what? After that's done, the next Wednesday, we'll hit Joel. Does that make sense? And so we're going to do this and study and read together. And it's kind of like that that second coat of paint principle. Like, if we need to go back and cover something, we will. But let's just get the first coat of paint on the wall first. (laughs) Let's see this message from the very beginning. This is God's word. And so as an act of allegiance to this prophet, let us listen to the twelve. After all, if we don't hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will we be convinced if some other mere mortal should rise from the dead. This is God's word. It is effective. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have prophesied doom for disobedience and our deliverance through your only son, Oh, may we heed the message of the prophets. Oh, teach us that reality that sin is heinous and 
the judgment is fierce and that grace is amazing and all will be well. Or prepare our hearts for that even today as we embark on this study in weeks to come. And whether the message be one of foretelling or forthtelling, we will keep clinging to you alone as our salvation, as our mediator, as the one that brings us into the presence of God. And we trust you, as the song says, to flower each promise of your word. Help us to leave here today confident in Christ and his prophetic word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.